Uh, well, we're going to be continuing in the book of Acts. The pastor left off on verse 36. We'll probably backtrack just a little bit uh, in a moment, but I kind of wanted to set the stage as we get into uh, to this portion. Uh, re- really, not, not too much has gone wrong so far uh, in the book of Acts. It's, it's really been uh, kind of just a, a, a nice ride, except uh, last week we saw that John and Peter uh, were arrested because of, of what God was using them to do, and the Sadducees were upset with them uh, and because they're preaching uh, the resurrection. They're pre- preaching a resurrected Jesus. And uh, so that's really the main thing that's kind of gone wrong. And, and this, this uh, next story, it, we see some, some more things going wrong. And we're going to see uh, later on in the book of Acts more arrests and more, uh, just a lot more things going on. Um, but as we kind of come to this passage, I kind of wanted to set the scene uh, with a quote. And this quote is from G. Uh, Campbell Morgan. Uh, and I found out that his name is George, if you didn't know his first name, George Campbell Morgan. Someone wrote in my uh, little uh, commentary here, 1863 to 1945 was, was when he was alive. Uh, this, is, this is what he says, and I don't know if I would put it as strongly as he does, but I think this gives us uh, kind of a lens through which we can view this story. The church, he says, has never been harmed or hindered by opposition from without. It has been perpetually harmed and hindered by perils from within. And I've seen this in in my own life. I I started a a church with a man named Torrico in Salta, Argentina, in this little little barrio called San Luis. And uh, the church was going great. And we always uh, needed more help in that church. Uh, always. I mean, you can always use more help when you're trying to get things started. You can always use more help if you're growing. And so that's kind of where we found ourselves. And this, this really tall uh, guy who had, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Argentines speak, but they, they kind of, it sounds like they're speaking Italian uh, when they're speaking Spanish. And so he comes in and he speaks kind of more like that uh, than, than most of the people at that uh, church did. And he, so he's, he's, kind of, he's really tall. He's, he's kind of good looking. And uh, he, he has his wife is with him. And he just seems like kind of a godsend for us. And we kind of latch on to him. And he just comes and he says, I heard that you guys have uh, a, a work here and it's new and you need help. And we're like, absolutely we do. And so uh, we let him come in and we let him get involved. And we quickly saw that this was not the right person to have uh, let that all happen with. This, is, this guy uh, was a very selfish person. And uh, I remember one time I had to be out. So I, I missed one meeting, one church uh, service that we had. And he caused a huge fight. Our church had never, it, it had, never had a fight. It was it was just weird. And so there was yelling and screaming. I wasn't even there to witness it, so I couldn't put an end to it. Uh, so we end up having to uh, ask this guy to leave, and he, he screams at us. I mean, it was absolutely horrible, but uh, it was never anything outside of that church that, 
that seem to hurt us. Even if people would say something bad about this new church, this evangelical church that's meeting in this, uh, in this specific place, uh, it was never that that, was, that would really affect us. But uh, this man was really the downfall of that church. He pretty much chased off about half of our people uh, before we were able to get him fully out. And uh, it, was just, it was just horrible. In fact, after that yelling match, about that, that half of those people just didn't come back. They're like, we don't really want to be a part of this uh, if this is how it's going to be. And so uh, I've, seen, I've seen churches be destroyed from within, and uh, we're going to see something in this, in this early church. Remember, we're, I mean, we're just, I mean, we're a couple pages into the church right now. Uh, some estimates say maybe the church at Jerusalem is somewhere around 10,000. Maybe it's a few thousand less. Maybe it's a few thousand more. We're not exactly sure. Um, but you can picture this thing, is, this thing is getting big. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is doing some amazing things uh, in Jerusalem. And, and before we kind of go a little more in, into this, I, I want to say that uh, we, we can't forget that, that Jesus promised His Holy Spirit uh, to the church. We see that happen on Pentecost. The disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit comes. And, and really, the book of Acts is, is everything that the Holy Spirit does through the apostles. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's called, the book is called Acts of the Apostles, but it's because these apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit that Jesus promise that really uh, kind of propels everything that happens. And this is uh, the, the things that the church was experiencing in those first days where everybody is excited. They're all of one heart and one soul. They have everything in common. They, uh, the, the apostles are acting with great power. They're giving testimony of the re- resurrection uh, great grace was upon them all. I mean, this is an exciting time for the church. I mean, if you think about what church is to be, I mean, it would be amazing to be right there in the middle of that. And I think that's usually what we do when we start reading scripture. We kind of drop ourselves onto the page and kind of imagine what it would be like to see what they were seeing, to experience what they were experiencing. Uh, but the, the, the Holy Spirit is in the church And because he's in the church, he's in the people. So when I say church, I obviously mean the people, all right? He is in the people, therefore he is in the midst of the gathered people, all right? And so that's really what we're uh, looking at as we get into uh, Acts chapter 5. But we're going to start at the very end of chapter 4. And I want you to remember the backdrop of what we just talked about. That it wasn't the things on the outside putting pressure on this brand new church that causes the church some harm. What causes the church some harm is some of the people within the church. In fact, most of the time, and I I don't think I could say never has the church been uh, affected by something from the outside. I, I won't say that, but I can say that definitely more times than not, it's someone from the inside doing something that starts kind of stirring up trouble uh, in the church, and that's what we're going to see uh, right here. So uh, the pastor read verse 34, but that's where I'm going to start. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them 
And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet. You're going to hear that phrase a lot tonight, laid at the apostles' feet. Just so you know, you can be on the lookout for more of those. You can underline them in your Bible if you want. Uh, They laid it at the disciples' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Now, David had talked about uh, last week that these weren't people that were selling their homes and now uh, giving all of their money to the church, and now they had nowhere to live or anything like that. This is this is probably people with extra land and extra homes on that land or something like that. So they're not selling themselves, so now they're in poverty, so now they're in need, and then they receive some of what they had given by the disciples comes back to them. That's not how it was working, but uh, they were selling really some of the extra things that they had so that they could meet the needs of that entire community. And uh, I think this is uh, the best part of the passage. It says, thus Joseph... Uh, this is a great man named Joseph. I just want to point out that most great men probably named Joseph, uh, in my personal opinion. Uh, he was also called by the disciples Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, and he was a native of Cyprus. All right, so I want to talk a little bit um, about uh, Joseph or Barnabas. I had actually, I was telling the pastor, I forgot that Barnabas's name was Joseph, uh, and he's never called Joseph again. And if you're going to trade a name for another name, I'm thinking Barnabas is not the way to go. Just stick with Joseph. Uh, but it means son of encouragement. And uh, son of encouragement in, in the uh, Hebrew language and Aramaic was really, uh, to say someone was the son of something, was really to point to their character. And so that's really what this is. It's, uh, is he's the son of encouragement. That means he's, he's a man of encouragement or exhortation, okay? And so Barnabas was this amazing, amazing man. We're not going to call him Barnabas, though. We're going to call him by his real... I'm just kidding. Uh, he was... He was given that name by the apostles, and it was probably because of just the kind of man uh, that he was. He was an encourager. He was an exhorter. He was probably skilled with language, skilled with the way that he would speak, probably skilled with scripture and knowing what to say. He's on the precipice, really, of the church and the way that it's growing and things. We're going to see Barnabas used in incredible ways, uh, but he was probably a, uh, probably like prophetic in the way of speaking forth God's word uh, to people. And so that's kind of where his name comes from. Uh, He's also a Levite, which means he is from the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was really dedicated to serve uh, in the temple. And we know that he was also from Cyprus, so he was probably not involved in serving at the temple uh, as as maybe some Levites were. Every single Levite didn't have to uh, do that and wasn't required of them. Uh, but he lived on Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is an, uh, an island uh, just to the east, outside of kind of northeast uh, of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we see Cyprus again because Barnabas, when he meets Paul, is going to go back to Cyprus. It's really one of their first stops on the first missionary journey, okay? So this is the same Barnabas, this, this amazing guy. You guys know about Barnabas, I know uh, already. We know about Saul and Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas is, is the one that uh, when Saul comes into the city, uh, all of the disciples are afraid of Saul, 
because he's been ravaging the church. And so they're basically running for him. And it was, it was Barnabas who gets a hold of Paul, brings him before the disciples, and he tells uh, Saul's story, everything that had happened to him, and uh, really gets the disciples on his side. And it's at that point when Saul uh, goes and uh, begins to preach. Um, so he's the one that tells Saul's story to them. He was on the first missionary journey. He's, he's really involved in, in much of Acts, uh, I think right up until about the end of chapter 15 uh, of Acts. We see a lot of things that he did, uh, but he stopped at his hometown Cyrus, uh, Cyprus on that first missionary journey. And so he brought Paul and he brought the word of God and he brought the gospel with them to his home island. And so that was a, a pretty amazing thing. He is, I know we always call uh, Paul the uh, missionary to the Gentiles, but Barnabas was with him on a lot of these uh, missions and he was also a missionary uh, to the uh, Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas, we know, have a disagreement. Uh, that's in chapter 16 of Acts. Uh, Mark had kind of flaked out on their missionary journey, and Barnabas was like, let's get John Mark again. Let's bring him with us. And uh, uh, Paul is like, no, not happening. He, he abandoned us. We're not doing that. They have such a, such an, a disagreement that they kind of part ways. Uh, so this is, this is the same Barnabas that we're talking about. Uh, an amazing man of God, amazing man of encouragement, missionary, you name it, uh, Barnabas was it. So he's a native of Cyprus, and we get to verse 37. Remember verse uh, 34 says, For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what, they, what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So now we hear Barnabas, what does he do? He sold a field that belonged to him. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, to kind of get this scenario so that you really understand it, you have to, you have to picture that this is at some sort of an assembly, okay? Especially, I don't know if, if Ananias and Sapphira and their story took place in the same day uh, that Barnabas and, and all of that took place, but if, if it's not an assembly right here, it is when we get into chapter 5. So you need to be picturing an assembly gathered, okay? The church is gathered. Later on, we learn that the, uh, uh, the church is meeting in the, in the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, I'm not going to get to those verses. It's in 12 through uh, 16. But this church is gathering together. Now, I don't know how many would gather there and how many were always gathered there, but they, the church was gathering. They, they loved to hear the disciples teaching. And so we can kind of picture that all of these things are happening during one of those assemblies. So he sells the field. It belongs to him. He brings all the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I think several commentators that I looked at said that, that they were probably a, a little more elevated and they, they would bring these things to the apostles, these, this money, and they would lay it at the apostles' feet. What a great example of how the church was acting and doing things. And I think Barnabas kind of fulfills that. Everything that we had just read that they were of one heart and soul. They had everything in common. They were giving testimony to the resurrection. Great grace was with them. All of that kind of comes to a head and, and gives us an example that we can see in Barnabas. Okay, he has this field. I don't know. We don't know the size of it. We don't know much of it, but land was worth money. 
and he was able to sell one of his fields, and he got all of those proceeds, and he brings that to the church because that's what the church did. And he wanted to help the people of the church. Now, I don't think when we think of people bringing their things and having everything in common, I don't want us to think that they were getting all of this together to go help the poor outside of the church. That wasn't what they were necessarily doing. What they were doing is they were helping each other. The, all of the people who had placed their faith in Christ and were following him and were believers in this culture, all 10,000 of them in Jerusalem, they were following Jesus, and because of that, they had everything in common. What held them, all of them having in, everything in common? It was the Holy Spirit with which they were all filled. It was Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection that united them. So Barnabas really shows visibly kind of the spirit of the church. Then we get to verse 5, and the word, uh, the, the, the chapter starts with the word but. In Greek, it's a, strong, it's a strong word, but a man named Ananias. So what that's already telling us is, okay, things were one way with Barnabas and with the church and everything that they were doing, but now something is different. So we're going to look at what's different. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property as well. So you're thinking, oh, great. And with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds. That word kept back from himself, uh, from, uh, for himself is really that word to embezzle. All right? Now, what embezzling means is that you're taking someone else's money and you're hiding it. And so what he had done with his property is he had sold it. And with the proceeds, it was supposed to be the churches. That's kind of what was happening, and instead, he embezzles it for himself. With his wife's knowledge, he keeps back for himself some of the proceeds, and he only brought a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So a lot has been said about, about Ananias' sin. What was, what was the specific sin that he had done? And some people are saying, well, it's because uh, he's, he stole from the church because he didn't give everything, or uh, they'll, say, they'll just say one thing or another. Here, here's the point of, of his sin. Barnabas had just done something, and, and the community was doing this. They would sell something, and they would bring all the proceeds uh, to the church, and they would give it to the disciples, and the disciples would distribute it to everybody that had needs. And so when Ananias sold his field and he brought some money before everyone and he lays it at the disciples' feet, everyone assumes that he has now done that with all of the proceeds from his field. But their assumption would be wrong. And therein lies the sin. It's hypocrisy. He is trying to make himself look better than he is. All right, we're going to get into that a little bit more as we continue. Peter is not going to be very kind with Ananias here with his words. But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, if you weren't paying attention, I mean, it, it didn't seem like he lied to the Holy Spirit. It seemed like he was lying to the entire church by making them assume that he was bringing all of the proceeds from the field that he had sold. It didn't seem like he was sinning against the Holy Spirit or lying to the Holy Spirit. But he says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Why has Satan done this? Why has he filled your heart for you to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then Peter, I think, just gives some words of wisdom. He's trying to talk with him. While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? When, when that field was unsold, like before you sold it, it was yours. All of it was yours. Every single bit of every little acre of your entire field, all of it was yours. So, and nobody was telling you to sell. It wasn't like at the, rule, the rules at the new church were saying, okay, if you come and you're going to follow Jesus because you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to sell your land. That wasn't uh, that wasn't a condition to be in the church. So it seems like this is very premeditated, that we know. He and his wife got together and they thought, how can we benefit from this? So it's a lie to the Holy Spirit. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have just kept all the money. That would have been okay. It's your money. It's your field. So what happened? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. That was it. Ananias's life is over. A lot of people think this is a, this is pretty pretty huge punishment for selling a field and giving to the church with the church thinking you've given everything but keeping some for yourself. It seems, it seems pretty drastic. And so the question is, why, why does it seem so drastic of a punishment? I think it was so drastic because this is the very beginning days of the church. And he fell down dead, not because of anything that Peter said or any judgment that Peter pronounced. Peter was just trying to protect the church. I read one of the commentators said, Peter was probably most surprised that Ananias dropped dead right after being confronted. Peter was just trying to protect the church. Ananias, you're, why have you done this? Everything was yours to begin with. It was all yours. Nobody was asking for it or anything, but you contrived this thing in your heart so that you would look like someone that you're clearly not. So he confronts Ananias in his sin. I think because Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, is establishing the church here, and it's at the, this fledgling stage. I think the punishment was so great because God was looking at the future, and he's saying this kind of thing can't happen. 
This isn't the way that a church is going to be recognized. A church is going to be recognized by the fact that they love one another, not by this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of deceitfulness. And so we see a very stiff punishment for it. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. I'm sorry, I skipped a verse there. Let's go back to that one because I wanted that one. It says, And great fear came upon all who heard of Ananias' death. I don't know if you remember, but uh, great awe was really the description of everything that God was doing early in the church. Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with wonder at everything that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit was doing through the church. And everybody had everything in common and everything was good. And now, for the first time, everybody is filled with fear. And this isn't like fear of the Lord, like this deep respect. They were scared. It made them reflect on themselves and it made them reflect on the dead man that was lying in front of them. And we know that there's more people there because we're going to see here at this next part. Great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I don't know how that happened so quick. It's, do you remember the Oompa Loompas in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? As soon as there was a problem, they would appear and they would take care of it. I remember them rolling uh, the blueberry away. And uh, I feel like, man, these, were these guys just standing there with all the cloths just ready to go? Somebody might drop dead today. <laughs> and then we'll get to wrap them up and we'll t- carry them out and we can bury them. That's not what happened, but I'm like, man, these guys... We're on top of it, and they're going to have their work cut out for him because Ananias wasn't going to be the only death that day. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you've sold the land for this amount of money. And she said, yes, for that amount of money. But Peter said to her, how is it? that you have agreed together, you and Ananias, to test the spirit. That word test is the word, it really means to provoke. It's like, how far can we push God before he acts? How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And so we see now two deaths. The two people who had conspired selfishly to raise themselves up in the church to appear as someone that they were not have now both died. I think every commentator that I had read Uh, would address the fact that Peter was not the one who had killed them. I had never thought that. Uh, I don't know why so many people do. Uh, But if you were thinking that, that's that's not what happened. This is God's judgment on a, a huge sin and a huge problem in that early church that needed to be dealt with. I think that the result of this was the people were saying, oh, this entire church thing that we're a part of, it's not, it's not just a thing of men. It's obviously a thing of God. This is something that He is in control over. This isn't something that we have all brought about. 
This is something that he is in charge of. This is something that he is working out. And he doesn't like that kind of behavior. He doesn't like that kind of sin. And it would cause all of them to check themselves. Now, how am I responding to God? How am I participating in this church? Am I, is there something wrong with the way I'm doing things? Because I just saw two people fall down dead, and I didn't think it was a big deal about what had happened, but it was obviously a big deal. So she breathes her last. Did you notice she falls down at the feet of the disciple? Pretty interesting. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who had heard of these things. I think there's great power in this story, not only for those inside the church, but for those outside of the church. And it all attests to the fact that God is doing something incredible within this group of believers and their standards inside that group of believers. It's the same now, but we don't see this kind of thing happening anymore. Probably very, I've never seen it. Uh, that guy in Argentina didn't drop dead. I had, I had prayed that a couple times. I'm just, just kidding, I didn't. Uh, I think really what we see here is, is something that we can all start thinking about. How, how am I behaving in the Lord's church? Am I doing things that bring Him honor? Or am I part of His body and I'm bringing Him dishonor in some way, shape, or form? And I don't know. I, the question is always, well, were Ananias and Sapphira, were they, were they believers? I don't, I don't know. Uh, this also kind of reminds us of a story uh, in Joshua 7 of, of Achan. The, uh, Joshua and, and his army had uh, made their laps around Jericho. Jericho had fallen. The Lord said, don't take anything for your own, any gold, any silver, anything like that. That's all dedicated and devoted to the Lord and something happens, the Lord's anger is kindled against them, and they find out that it is this man named Achan. And he says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done and don't hide it from me, Joshua says. And Achan answered to Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak, from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I then coveted them, and I took them. And see, they're all hidden in the earth, right here, inside my tent, with the silver underneath. And the people took him out, and they stoned him, because, they, because his jealousy had kindled the anger of the Lord. And I see uh, this same kind of pattern here in the early church where the Lord's anger is kindled because someone has tried to elevate themselves instead of elevate the Lord. I think this passage helps us examine our own hypocrisy. Hopefully, we're not people who 
say one thing and do another or make people think one thing while behind our backs we have something hidden or we're actually not the people that we say that we are. I know pastors uh, continually find themselves in this place of feeling like the people somehow view them as these great spiritual leaders, and it's because of God's grace, because none of us feels like these super Christians. We feel like just every last one of you do, how we're, we're, we make mistakes, we have sin, we're trying to deal with it, we're trying to lead, we're trying not to be hypocrites, just like all of us. So hopefully this helps you uh, look at yourself that way. Uh, and the other thing I, I think we can see is that uh, I, I wonder how much damage Ananias and Sapphira would have caused the church had they not fallen down dead when they did. Who knows if God was sparing the church from so much more harm that could have been wrought by these two who had devised this scheme to steal and lie from the Holy Spirit. I forgot to talk about it, but I don't know if you noticed. It says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. So that is the great sin. 